I think those who eat a phytochemical-free diet will survive, but I think the quality of their life will suck. I think if you look at health span rather than lifespan, it's conceivable though that people who eat no phytochemicals, no fruit and veg could live to whatever some reasonable old age is, but all the data says that they won't eat, they won't live healthy. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hey friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In my career, I've worked with many people, including elite professional athletes, to improve their health, performance, and longevity. And I'm currently involved in research with a group of nutrition scientists in Australia, looking at dietary patterns and mental health. Today, I sit down with the great Jed Fay, PhD. Dr. Fay is a nutritional biochemist with an extensive background in plant and human nutrition and phytochemistry. He was an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medical School, where he directed the Coleman Chemo Protection Center, a leading center for the study of phytochemicals, or phytonutrients as they're often called. In this conversation, we cover what phytochemicals are, some of the proposed ways that phytochemicals affect human physiology and health, Dr. Fay's research interest into broccoli and sulforaphane, sulforaphane from food versus supplements, which is better and why, glucosinolates and thyroid function, whether resveratrol is a longevity compound, and plenty more. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. 
two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Welcome to the show, Jed. It's a pleasure to finally have you with us. Thank you, Simon. I very much appreciate it. I look forward to uh, to chatting with you about all things um, phytochemicals and anything else you want to talk about, and we'll, we'll see where we go. Yes. So for a, a bit of background context for the listeners, this conversation came about following an introduction from our mutual friend, Doug Evans, uh, and, and people who have been longtime listeners of the show will be familiar with him. He's the author of The Sprout Book. And he's been on the show a couple of times now. So I was I was spending some time out at Wonder Valley Hot Springs, uh, Doug's business outside of LA. And of course, in typical Doug fashion, he spoke to me about sprouts and the powerful nutrition that sprouts offer at almost no, every opportunity. No, really? really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's no surprise. And and sure enough, your name, the great Dr. Jed Fay. And your work with broccoli sprouts and this wonderful compound called sulforaphane came up a number of times. And, and here we are today, a chance for us to connect and a chance for myself and the listeners to learn from an incredible career scientist. So, Jed, perhaps you can take us back. I know that you're a nutritional biochemist, and I know you have this passion for phytochemicals and have been studying them for decades, uh, much of that while at Johns Hopkins. How did all of this come about? Um, it's a very long story. I'll spare you. Uh, let me condense it. But um, I, first, I have to give a shout out to Doug Evans and say thanks, Doug. And and his, I, I mean, I was so, um, I won't say gobsmacked, but I was so happy to see his book when it came out, The Sprout Book, which which really, I mean, has a lot of science in it, and 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 it was just so readable and usable for the layperson who wanted to try sprouts. Because as you probably are aware, I'm sure this is the case in Australia as it is here. Um, it's difficult to get them in the supermarket, and they don't last very long. They don't ship very well. Um, so so I think Doug has done a great service to the community of people who want to eat a bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you asked about my background and I told you about Doug, but um, I can tell you how I got there if you'd like. No, I, um, uh, I completely agree with you. That, the, the book's incredible. It is very accessible. And, you know, when, when Doug was telling me about the power of sprouts, and, and of course, I've seen sprouts in the grocery store for, for years and years, but I never really thought of them, you know, other than anything but a, a small little topping. And I didn't see them as 
the sort of nutritional powerhouse that they are. And of course, when you learn what's in them, then you have a million questions. Well, you know, how long do I soak them for? What kind of jars do I need? And, and he did a great job covering all of that. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think he did. And I've heard some of his podcasts and, that he's done with others. And, um, and, and, and so um, rock on, Doug, keep going. Um, so I, I got into this business because I wanted to feed the world um, when I was a, you know, when I was a kid. First, I wanted to do it with oyster culture because I lived near a um, an oyster culture, uh, an oyster aquaculture farm. Um, I was toying around with going to music school because I was a classical cellist, and I wound up going to college. And I was thrown in with a bunch of pre meds, and I knew that I didn't want to do that. Although in hindsight, it might have been fun, but. Um, so I, I studied algae, microalgae, and I got a master's in algal physiology. Um, and I got hooked up with spirulina or spirulina, which is a which became a big health food craze. So this was back, by the way, and you know, I went to college in the early 70s. I got gray hair, I've been around a bit. Um, and went to graduate school, got a master's in the in the late 70s. I, I didn't get my doctorate in human nutrition and, and um, uh, nutritional biochemistry until I was about 50 years old at Johns Hopkins. But that's another story. So I thought I'd feed the world with spirulina. You know, that didn't work. My first job was um, actually working on the Viking uh, Mars lander project where they were trying to simulate the date. We were trying to simulate the data from Mars to show that there was life on Mars. Um, we didn't, by the way, or you would have heard about it and I'd probably be wearing a different hat, <laughs> but, and I was, I was of course a technician for, uh, somebody who had invented one of the, the lunar, the Mars lander packages, the, the, the labeled release experiment. Anyway, that was a short job, but in that job, uh, I was able to get slightly more piped into uh, food production and and algal secondary products. And this is key to what you're asking, I guess. So I did a study for this small company I worked for where we were looking at the benefits of the stuff that algae produce other than carbohydrates and proteins and, and fats and fiber maybe. Um, anyway, and I worked for a bunch of biotech companies for about 15 years in agricultural biotechnology. My focus shifted. I thought I was going to help feed the world by making uh, better, more productive plants that had nitrogen-fixing bacteria associated with them when they weren't born that way, as it were. Um, those promises, it turned out, were very long-term. A lot of those biotech, I, I worked for, I guess, three different companies. And they all had very long-term horizons and, you know, a lot of hand-waving and promises to investors that were never really, in hindsight, that promising. And then I wound up at Johns Hopkins looking for a way out of these, these promise-you-everything biotech companies. And I don't mean to demean them or damn them, but that's sort of the way I felt at the time. And in 1993... I uh, met up with Paul Talalay, who was a very distinguished professor of pharmacology at Johns Hopkins. And he had just discovered with his collaborator, with his student, I should say, Yushin Zhang, sulforaphane, this molecule, which we can talk about later. 
Um, it's a phytochemical. They discovered it in broccoli, tiny amount. And Paul asked if I would join him, if I would take a risk joining him because this was sort of wacky at the time. Um, the idea, they discovered it, I should say, because their goal was to develop food-based cancer preventive compounds. Um, and that was very, uh, it was not very popular in the scientific community back in the early 90s. Anyway, I, I then spent uh, 27 years with Paul. We developed the Chemo Protection Center. I wound up directing it uh, in the end. Um, and we were studying the effects of phytochemicals, plant chemicals, on not just cancer prevention, but the prevention of, you know, we, we evolved uh, the prevention of a whole slew of chronic diseases. We had focused on cancer. By the time I retired in 2020, in the middle of the year, the middle of the pandemic, remotely, virtually, I retired, had three virtual retirement parties, um, <laughs> which are pretty freaking lame. You know, you'd hoist a glass, but I appreciate those people who did it for me. And by the time I retired, we really had expanded our scope and the field had expanded hugely um, to realize that phytochemicals from plants, which we still have to define, but I'm going to take mm. a breath first, um, have huge benefit in the preventive world. Um, I'm going to take a breath. Sir. Yeah. I mean, what a what a, a multifaceted journey. Thank you for, for sharing that. And congratulations on the, the retirement. Uh, you mentioned discovery of sulforaphane. And yeah. if if I heard you correctly, I think you said 1993. And this gets me thinking about the discovery of phytochemicals in general. And, uh, you know, I think we discovered vitamins in the early kind of 1910s and then minerals. Yep. Um, you know, by the 1950s, there were daily values for things like calories and protein and, and various vitamins and minerals. When was it that scientists first realized that, hey, plants contain not only energy, macronutrients, vitamins, and minerals, but there's also this other class of compounds that we now call phytochemicals? Um, you know, that's a good question, Simon, and I'm not positive when that might have been, but I know that when I started at, at Johns Hopkins in 93, um, the word phytochemicals or phytonutrients, they were called by some people, doesn't really matter what you call them, had been, certainly had been around um, probably since the 70s. But mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I'll have to, I'll sort of have to revisit history on this to give you a, a really accurate answer. But I think the realization sort of accompanied this discovery of sulforaphane and, and, at, at that point in time, people already knew about curcumin from turmeric, a very, very powerful and potent Indian uh, mm -hmm. Indian subcontinent spice. Um, and so people certainly knew that phytochemicals gave flavor and taste and odor or scent to plants. Um, the idea that they were being repurposed by our bodies for protection against disease or for therapy in the Western medicine tradition is, is certainly, I would say, in the last 30 to 50 years. Mm -hmm. 
But as I'm, as I know, you know, because I read your excellent book, um, the, the um, traditional medicine uh, traditions go back thousands of years and the idea that plants could do these funky things like protect you against certain diseases was well established. It's just that Western physicians and Western nutritionists were pretty clueless until the mm-hmm. 70s or 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we better define phytochemicals for the viewers who are just coming, you know, coming to this naive, shall we say. The way I define them is any of the compounds produced by plants that are not vitamins, minerals, or the macro, the macros, uh, carbohydrates, proteins, fats, fiber. Um, they are secondary metabolites of plants. And what that means is just that they're not the main things plants have to have to survive and to, 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 to live, but they are protective of the plants. Plants evolved, you know, Michael Pollan famously, I can't remember his exact quote, but he said something like the effect of plants are stuck where they they can't run away, they can't fight. So they've evolved this incredible armamentarium of defensive compounds. Mm -hmm. That's what phytochemicals are. And they attract pollinators, they repel uh, predators in some cases. Um, And, you know, they, they have a whole host of purposes in the plant, we repurpose some of them because they're not toxic to us. And of course, some phytochemicals like nicotine are, are very toxic to, to humans. So there's, there's a balance. And the question of how we, we as humans evolved, knowing that we could eat some plants and not others is pretty cool. I'd love someone to give me a good answer to that. How many people had to die trying, mm-hmm. you know, uh, foxglove or, or nicotiana or some toxic plant. Um, but so that's what phytochemicals are. They're present in very low quantities, um, uh, sub, you know, milligram quantities or microgram quantities. And because of that, or as a result of just the way they evolved, many mm-hmm. of them are very potent either as colorants, flavorants, or, or scents. So I know we're going to explore kind of how they affect our physiology, but a question has just kind of popped into my mind. So if these compounds are part of the the plant's natural defense system against predation from insects and fungi and uh, certain animals, mm-hmm. is there a difference between organic and conventional produce and their sort of phytochemical content? Do, do organic foods contain more because the plant has to perhaps defend for itself more? Yes, yes, yes. And can I, is there great proof? Uh, It's getting better. Um, 20, 30 years ago, I I got into pitched battles with with horticulturists at meetings and agronomists about that that question. and it was poo-pooed, um, and there really wasn't much evidence to support what you're suggesting um, 20, 30 years ago. Um, it's very clear now that, yes, there are more, it depends on what phytochemical you're asking about, of course, but there are certainly more when plants are stressed um, and stressed in certain ways. Uh, cannabis produces more THC and CBD 
when it's when it's up at higher elevations and gets more ultraviolet light. It's in part a protective mechanism. Um, you know, broccoli appears to produce more of the precursor to sulforaphane when it's being chomped on by by predators, uh, worms and 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 uh, various predators. So the evidence isn't. The evidence is still, I would say, isn't uh, isn't as good as I'd like to see it, um, but it's certainly building. And when you think about what the plant has to do, um, I mean, it's it's so intuitive that that what you say is true. Um, and I hope that doesn't get in the way of of a lot more really concrete proof that will shut some mm-hmm. people up about it. So you look at an apple, you know, you look at a perfect apple in a supermarket, maybe even wrapped in plastic. Um, It's been bred um, for sweetness. We can talk about sugar if you want, but so it's been bred for sweetness and it's been bred for pest resistance and it's been bred for time of fruiting so that they can all be harvested at the same time. And um, it, it has not been typically bred for flavor, although obviously mm-hmm. there are various cultivars of apples. But then you look at an organic apple, and they've got blemishes. They've got, you know, um, no, I forgot what they're called. Blemishes, cankers, various mis- mm-hmm. misshapen um, features because they've been stressed by bugs um, uh, during their lifespan. And most people, especially the uh, the cider makers and the apple juice makers, will will tell you that tremendously more flavor in those organic mm-hmm. or heirloom apples uh, that don't get sprayed with pesticides, which kill every damn bug and every bacterium around them, and so they're growing in dirt instead of mm-hmm. nurtured by soil. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm I'm ranting and ex- maybe exaggerating a little bit, but. Hopefully, it gets no. The point it's super, it. super interesting. Do you have any kind of idea as to how many phytochemicals have been identified by scientists? You know, what sort of number are we talking about here? And and I guess to extend that question, when someone says to you, you know, broadly speaking, how are phytochemicals classified? Because I think people will have heard of things like polyphenols before and perhaps know that resveratrol is a polyphenol and here you talking about sulforaphane but how are these kind of broken up into different classes of phytochemicals yeah so um first the number um so my colleague and friend tom kensler and i did a paper that came out about a year ago uh called um that was examining the use of phytochemicals um and uh, so it was published, and and we wanted to be as we wanted to pick a number for how many phytochemicals there are in the universe that someone else had sort of published because we didn't want to get because it's hard it's 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 a hard number to defend, mm-hmm. uh, frankly. Um, and so we picked the most conservative number we could find, which was fifty thousand um, phytochemicals, and somebody by the name of Barbasi published that in a 2020 uh, paper in a good journal. And we said, let's pick that one. Um, But the interesting thing is, um, well, two interesting comments I'd like to make. One is that in that paper, I, for the first time, read the characterization of phytochemicals as the dark matter of nutrition. And we used that in our paper. We, We copied it. 
I love that characterization because it is that. I mean, there are, there are a ton of them. They act um, synergistically, additively, cooperatively, antagonistically. And you get certainly hundreds to thousands with every different plant you eat. Um, the more liberal estimate is comes actually and is supported by my friends at Brightseed, a, a biotech company out in San Francisco. And they're doing sort of metabolomics of plants. They're doing prospecting of phytochemicals. Um, and they're using all the latest tools of, of artificial intelligence and, and uh, the latest um, the latest technology. And their estimate is that the number is more like five to 10 million phytochemicals in the world of, of plants. Mm. Now, Gosh. chop that in half and say only half are from edible plants and half are from toxic plants. Still, it's still a, you know, a damn big number. Mm -hmm. um, people. So to your second, second question or the second part of it, people tend to, it depends on who you are, how you characterize them. Chemists, phytochemists, biologists, by and large, will sort of key on the class of compound, the, the, the way the molecule is shaped. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, sulforaphane, it belongs to a class called isothiocyanates. You mentioned the polyphenols. There's certainly the, the hugest group of phytochemicals that are known are the flavonoids, um, include isoflavones like uh, those from soy, uh, diazin, genistein, um, uh, a, a just, I, I think there's something like 30,000 identified flavonoids, but they are the things that give uh, berries, so many berries, they're rich color, mm -hmm. blackberries, raspberries, blueberries, uh, blackberries and raspberries. Blueberries actually have another class of compounds called anthocyanins. But again, this is all based on chemical structure, and each of these families is large. The more um, sort of traditional medicine um, plant healer community tends to think about or tends to talk about their function and classify them by function. Mm -hmm. You know, adaptogens, um, pigments, uh, um, you know, scents, S-E-N-T-S, mm -hmm. um, and so there are a lot of ways of categorizing them. As a nutritional biochemist, I use the chemical scheme really when I think about them and talk about them because, because that keys you into what they might do molecularly, mm -hmm. um, how they might act you know, mechanistically. And carotenoids would be another group, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, 
as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. What would be the kind of most well-studied phytochemicals if there was a handful or so? I mean, you mentioned curcumin. Uh, what what would the this kind of top five phytochemicals be and, and what foods would they be found in? Um, I, I, I'm chuckling because in the paper I referred to that, that I, uh, Tom Kensler and I did, which I don't know if you have show notes that you can link to, I'll have yeah, to we'll put it get in you there. that. But we, we actually plotted the number of citations in all the scientific, the large scientific database um, scopus we used, uh, which you can look in PubMed or anywhere else. Um, the number of citations for each of the phytochemicals, like we ranked them highest to lowest. And then we contrasted that on the other axis to um, number of clinical studies, because that's what we were keying in on in this paper. And what rose to the very top was um, CBD. Uh, not really a surprise, I suppose. Um, and um, N-acetylcysteine, which is not directly really a phytochemical. Um, and things like quercetin from mm. uh, onions and uh, oak leaves and so on um, was up there. What do I think? Yeah, and sulforaphane, which we, which I spent over a quarter century studying, mm-hmm. was I don't know number 40, 45 or something. So it, in terms of number of citations, it wasn't really high. Um, uh, I mean, there were thousands, many thousands, but um, the ones that were were highest had 70,000 citations. Wow. I I'm going to do you a favor and not pull that paper up and try to multitask here and read read you the from the list, but um, 
Yeah, that list is certainly accessible and mm-hmm. we could read from it. You know? Yeah, I'll put that into the the show notes. So there's, you know, minimum there's 50,000 of these phytochemicals, quite possibly there's up to millions of them that are available to us through our diet. I'm interested in your view on whether they are to be considered essential or not. You know, if someone doesn't consume vitamin C and develops deficiency, they can develop scurvy. The same could be said with vitamin D and rickets or vitamin B1 and beriberi. And and we've all heard about these nutritional deficiency-related diseases, uh, the typical kind of non-communicable diseases from early 1900s. What happens if someone eats very little plant foods and consumes very little amounts of phytochemicals? Um, again, you're going to, you're going to get me pontificating and, and perhaps hypothesizing a little bit, but, um, this is something which is called the, the, the Western diet or the American diet, right. Um, which is very low by and large on phyto phytochemicals and, and, I've got another plot somewhere that I can share with you sort of showing over evolution over something like 10,000 generations of humankind. So the, the relative percentages of fat sugar, which was essentially non-existent when we started out um, uh, protein and, and um, uh, carbs in the diet and phytochemicals, which we, we guesstimated, but, Phytochemical content was certainly high and high high in the hunter-gatherer era, era, went down in the agriculturalist period, which has only been ten thousand years or so, because humankind focused on mono, on a very small number of plants then, and and stayed has stayed low with certainly the Western diet, um, because we eat so much ultra-processed food. the The numbers are staggering. Um, something like 60, 60 or seventy percent of food and eaten is is processed or highly processed, and those ultra processed foods are stripped of phytochemicals, mm. um, more or less. And, and there's a lot of hand waving and, and and marketing about those that say they're not. There are also a lot of other things added to them, but um, I think you asked what I. You ask what I think, and I do I have proof of this? Not really, not yet, but I think those who eat a phytochemical-free diet will survive, but I think the quality of their life will suck. So mm-hmm. I think um, if you look at health span rather than lifespan, it's conceivable though that people who eat no phytochemicals, no fruit and veg, uh, could live to whatever, you know, some reasonable old ages, but all the data says that they won't eat, they won't live healthy, um, that they will suffer from one, two, three, four, five uh, concurrent chronic disease states by the time they are uh, at the end mm-hmm. of the road. And, you know, that's called health span. Um, and, the, and conversely, it's been shown that people eating phytochemical rich, call the Mediterranean diets, or as you know, there are many, many others. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't have to be, um, there, there does not have to not be any meat in those diets. And of course, it's a complex of things that's been talked about by Dan Butner and Blue Zones and, and so on. 
um, stress and exercise and so on, but and sleep. Um, but those those people who eat phytochemical rich diets have much better health span and much fewer concurrent diseases. Um, and then someday, my goal is just not to wake up someday. But damn, it was a good ride until I got there. Mm-hmm. Um, quality and, of life. Yeah, yeah, it's all about quality of life. Um, I, I'm, you know, it's hard to do that that exper- that phytochemical free experiment in human beings, though, mm. right? Um, I mean, it's ethically, it's mm. not an experiment you can do, and it would take the lifetime of an investigator and zillions of dollars. Mm. So, um, it's not very straightforward. Short term, you can do it. But. What about if we think about the mechanism of action, though, that may speak to how those phytochemicals are affecting health span? You know, I mentioned vitamins and minerals before, and and uh, you know these vitamins and minerals are considered essential because they often act as cofactors or components of of enzymes and are kind of critical for the body. Uh, if if we're if the body's not relying on phytochemicals as cofactors and components of enzymes you know what what pathways are they acting on what what's the kind of proposed mechanism of action that leads to these phytochemicals exerting this this benefit that then you know reduces our risk of developing chronic disease yeah so remember with pick the number 50 50, 50,000 to 5 million phytochemicals um of course, there's so many different ones and so many different categories that really, I think it's very safe to assume that they probably affect all major metabolic pathways and probably all minor metabolic pathways. I would be shocked if they didn't. Um, we know from our work that um, certainly these different classes of phytochemicals do act on both the same and different pathways. And so their, their mechanisms of, of action overlap. We've, uh, we've focused, as I said, on sulforaphane and the isothiocyanates. And for example, the mechani- mechanisms of action there include um, anti-angiogenesis, which is development of proliferation of blood vessels, especially important in cancer. Um, anti-inflammatory, which I don't think I need to say any more about. Um, there's activity against the heat shock response, which is a protein damage reparation, sort of a, a pathway among others. Um, and um, it, it, these are potent antioxidants and um, uh, detoxication. They're, they're potent in promoting detoxication of the cell. So to unpack that, and, and I should mention, I was actually just listening to a podcast by Kara Fitzgerald and Jessica Houston, and she was talk, Kara was talking about all of the um, uh, DNA methylation um, effects mm-hmm. that phytochemicals, some of them have either been shown to have or, or certainly may have, uh, incredibly important in epigenetics and, and imprinting. So um, the... I mentioned the antioxidant potency, for example, of sulforaphane. We have for years now called sulforaphane an indirect antioxidant. And the reason for that is that it it is not a direct antioxidant like vitamin C is. Vitamin C is used up as soon as it encounters reactive oxygen. um, and, And you have to give it more. So you have to have vitamin C on board in the blood um, to, to do its thing. 
What happens with sulforaphane is that chemically it's not an antioxidant. Um, I repeat, it is not. And so, but what it does is it, is it upregulates or induces or boosts levels of a whole suite of protective enzymes that in and of themselves are antioxidant enzymes, enzymes that supply the glutathione pathway. Glutathione is the body's most potent, uh, most abundant, I should say, antioxidant. Um, it upregulates um, through a, a regulator called the NERF2 or NRF2. It upregulates um, hundreds uh, of detoxication and antioxidant enzymes, as well as a variety of anti-inflammatory responses. So um, do other phytochemicals do exactly that? Yeah, they do. And for curcumin is actually an example, um, but there are others which don't. Things like resveratrol um, is, is a potent uh, uh, potent in in, um, in the mTOR pathway um, and phosphorylation so you you have to look at the at the at the way each of them interact and you know I've spent a quarter century studying essentially one set of pathways and one set of compounds not that we haven't done a lot of other things too um, so it's so I can't give you a one word answer or you know I can't give you one answer but um, I'd say they affect all, all uh, biochemical mechanisms. And, but what that, and I'm sorry to drone on about this, but what that means from the perspective of health span and quality of life is that, yeah, you can live, but if you upregulate your defenses, then, you know, you're not going to uh, develop, uh, you know, COPD as quickly or, um, uh, you're not going to perhaps develop uh, whatever cancer you had a big red target on your back for um, uh, maybe ever or maybe as soon. So it's it's extending or it's pushing up that quality of life that I think is what phytochemicals are all about. They're not nutrients in the classic sense of the word. Except, you know, we know that. And they're not vitamins or minerals in the sense that they're not cofactors for enzymes although they do upregulate some of the enzymes that, you know, that have cofactors we're familiar with. When you say they, they upregulate our natural defense system and some of these pathways like the NRF2 pathway, which then results in the production of the antioxidant glutathione, yeah. is, is that because these molecules, going back to what you stated earlier, are part of the plant's defense system and they're causing some micro stress within our bodies is that what's happening is that why we respond in that way um it, it appears with many of them absolutely it appears that that's what happens so there's been relatively little comparatively little work done on what those phytochemicals do in the plants that have them that, that make them except fighting off critters and predators um but it is known that they do up, they do upregulate or in, or boost boost the activity, cause more enzyme molecules to be produced. Um, I, I realize upregulate is a little mm-hmm. wonky a word, but they, they cause essentially they they go they enter the cell, they go to the nucleus, um, or they sorry they in the case of sulforaphane, it goes into the cell, it it binds to the NRF two regulator, which then or it's it's chaperone, which then goes to the nucleus, gloms onto the DNA, and says to the DNA at a specific region, 
make more of this enzyme in this one and this one. And so mm-hmm. the cell makes more of those enzymes. But then the sulforaphane, and, and this is true of many other phytochemicals, it's 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 an exogenous compound. It's a foreign, it's foreign. Our cells, you know, don't want it and they chuck it out. And it winds up back in the bloodstream and then back filtered out and back in the urine. So we get rid of sulforaphane every bit as fast as we get rid of vitamin C. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's data to show that, that we and others have developed. Um, but the difference is when the vitamin C goes away and you flush it down the toilet, um, the antioxidant ability that came with it is gone. When sulforaphane is flushed down the toilet, its effect lasts for a day or two or three days because it is it has helped create more of these enzymes that um, are effective detoxifiers. So other than, and and we can talk about sulforaphane because I appreciate that it may be hard to kind of answer some of these questions, broadly speaking about all phytochemicals, given their, their kind of unique differences in terms of how they affect physiology. But other than upregulating the NRF2 pathway, and and resulting in the production of antioxidants is is there any potential for deleterious effects uh, you know on other pathways often i i hear about this kind of biphasic mechanism of action which i guess speaks to the importance of dose yeah, do you yeah. do you have any thoughts on that yeah certainly um and so um with as you, I mean, thank you for not pushing me to talk about all 5 million phytochemicals because I obviously can't, but um, yeah, with sulforaphane, um, we, for example, we know that there may be a downside to, for example, taking it if you have a frank um, uh, cancer. So if you have a tumor, I mean, when you think about what I just told you it does in terms of protecting against oxidants and, and oxidative stress um, in, in a, quote, healthy body. Um, when you think about what a tumor is, uh, a tumor is something that grows fast, certainly grows faster than the surrounding tissue or the surrounding cells. That's how, that's how it ultimately has its, its effect, the uh, cancer does. So, if if sulforaphane protects a, uh, a normal cell, does it also protect a cancer, a, a rapidly growing cancer cell? And I think we still, unfortunately, although a lot of work has been done on it, we don't know enough to really be prescriptive um, in our recommendations. Because although it, it certainly appears that it enables more rapid growth of cells by protecting them from oxidative stress, it also has effect effects on things um, things like um, uh, autophagy, which is the normal uh, process by which your body and your organs kill off cells when they're at the end of the line. Um, and and you know, so we have a constant cycling of cells, things like the colon, especially, um, but in, in almost all of the body. Um, so. The reason sulforaphane has been called a double-edged sword in terms of cancer is because there are these those effects which it may which are actually beneficial in in fighting cancers. And for example, there are synergies that have been shown with um, a couple of cancer drugs. So they enhance the 
the mechanism or the the activity of um, cisplatin, which is a widely used drug, and exemestane, which is a, an aromatase inhibitor used in breast cancer uh, therapy. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, it in terms of uh, a prescriptive approach, I would say that is a caveat. Um, in terms of dose, I mean, it was said by Paracelsus or one of those one of those old guys um, that it, you know the dose makes the poison. Mm. So you can kill yourself with too much salt or water or anything, and, and certainly with too much, I'm sure, of any phytochemical. There's this concept of hormesis, not not um, not to be confused with with another similar word that I'm not very fond of, but. Um, uh, the idea that at a low dose there may be benefit, at a higher dose there may be toxicity, um, and and you know so picking the right dose range um, is is clearly important for all of the these phytochemicals, which could lead us to a, a day long conversation about you know supplementing supplements versus mm-hmm. whole food or real food, and. Um, I certainly make the case, and many others do, that if you eat real food, um, fruits and vegetables, or or uh, you know meats, seafood, and so on, you're you're self-regulating what you're getting. Um, people often ask me about broccoli. Well, you know, how much broccoli do I have to eat to get enough sulforaphane? Well, when you eat too much broccoli, your body's going to say, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to go throw up, or you know, I'm I'm stuffed. I'm just uncomfortable. I'm not going to eat anymore, and that that's sort of an auto sort of an auto break on, I think, overconsumption of these things. What you, I mean, what you're speaking to is really important because we can kind of fall into this trap of when you identify something that has a beneficial effect on physiology, that you you fall into the trap of thinking more equals better. And that's not always the case. So I do want to come in a little bit to talk more about the types of foods that sulforaphane can be found in, you know, minimum effective amount and supplements and dosage and all of that. But before we do that, I want to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit here while we're talking about some of these pathways like the uh, NRF2 pathway. I do like to kind of jump outside of my echo chamber that you know all of us kind of fall into inevitably and my my low carb kind of carnivorish diet friends would probably push back here a little bit and i've heard them talk about uh sulforaphane and these pathways before and also this kind of biphasic um sort of make a mechanism of action where these compounds could be potentially deleterious at, at high doses and one thing that I've heard them say is that our body doesn't need these plant compounds to upregulate NRF2 and produce glutathione. And in fact, you know, exercise and cold therapy and sauna will do all of this just fine without the risk of ingesting these, these kind of quote-unquote plant toxins, as they put it. What do you think about that kind of idea? I think I, that resonates with you, but I, but I know I know there are rabid carnivores. Um, in fact, I guess the other thing I'd point out: you mentioned saunas and cold therapy. 
and, mm. and exercise. Sure, evolutionarily, um, everybody got a lot more exercise than most modern Western cultures do now. Um, but certainly not everybody did sauna therapy and cold therapy. Um, and so, I mean, there are a lot of measures to which fitness enthusiasts go mm-hmm. and bodybuilders go. And that's great for them, but it doesn't translate to society as a whole as a way to live, I think. Mm-hmm. Has there been any studies that have looked at kind of quantifying when you consume uh, foods that are uh, rich in glucosinolates, which then produce sulforaphane, uh, and they're kind of the production of glutathione? and how that compares to, say, a bout of exercise or getting into an ice bath. Um, are these are these comparable in terms of the amount of antioxidants that the body would produce in response to those various forms of stress? I, I don't know that there have been – I'm not aware of head-to-head studies on, that, on, on the specific question you asked, but I would venture to say that the effects are as great with sulforaphane consumption. I mean, we, we, we see effects, um, we see effects on a variety of, of disease conditions, disease states we see effects on the, uh, when I say we, I use that term loosely, we and others. Um, but various clinical studies showing effects on, um, both biomarkers of the disease state, including glutathione levels or, 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 um, uh, reduced to oxidized glutathione um, that are um, statistically significant and that are elevated and impressive. And, and so I'm thinking of studies that I was actually involved with um, in diabetes, for example, in um, uh, airway diseases, asthma and, and um, diesel exhaust particle toxicity um, to air pollution in China. Some studies we, we did again with my colleague, Tom Kensler. Um, and so, yes, there are studies that show positive effects of sulforaphane or, or broccoli sprout extract consumption or broccoli sprout consumption. Um, how do they compare with exercise? Uh, or or uh, we'd like to find that out. But um, and in fact, there are a couple of clinical studies I, I know of that are that are aiming to look at something like that. Um, we have to be reductionist too, right? I mean, we have yeah. to, you can't look at everything at once. So it, it, it becomes a more and more expensive and difficult study to get funded and to pull off mm-hmm. as you start to layer these things on. But, but yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think the yeah. answer is equivalence. And I think until that evidence kind of exists, the, the, the common sense approach or what I see as common sense approach is not looking at this as it's one or the other but how many of these different aspects of our life can we try and integrate and stack on top of each other? Um, yep. And so, sulforaphane, let's dig into this a little more. And, and you've just mentioned there some of the science that has been conducted uh, in, into this molecule. Are we talking mainly animal studies or are these human intervention studies? If someone just said, you know, Jed, how well established is it that sulforaphane uh, is beneficial for for humans? What are the kind of best areas of science or studies that you would point to? 
So I think there, and, and again, my colleague Tom Kensler and I have a different paper that talks about to have th about three different papers in the last three years that talk about this. Um, I think in terms of animal studies and cell culture studies, there are tons of them, to use a very technical term, uh, certainly hundreds of uh, probably thousands, actually probably thousands. Um, in terms of clinical studies, human studies with real live human beings, there are close to 100 now that have been done. We've been involved with many of them, but but certainly not all. Um, uh, so at least half of them are done by or more by other groups. Um, and so those studies have administered either the food, which is broccoli or broccoli sprouts, or the precursor, which is found in those foods when they're not damaged, and that's called glucoraphanin, mm -hmm. or sulforaphane, which is what's ultimately produced in a plant that's chewed on by insects or that's destroyed by bacteria because it's a defensive reaction. It's also, I should mention, produced in your gut by your microbiome. So that if you ingest cooked broccoli, for example, you make sulforaphane from the precursor. Um, just the levels and rates are vary mm -hmm. all over the place from person to person. So of those close to 100 studies, um, probably two-thirds uh, or half to two-thirds were done on healthy individuals. Um, but the, the other types of disease states or conditions that were examined include diabetes, a, a number of different cancers, um, COPD, as I said, asthma and allergy, diesel exhaust particle toxicity, just um, volatile air pollution toxicity. Uh, we have a number of studies we did in China on that. Um, and the outcomes, and I should say autism uh, and schizophrenia, and I've been involved in about seven studies uh, on, on the combination of those two, both in the U.S. and in China. Um, and so I'd say the take-home on schizophrenia is still up for debate uh, because it's very difficult to study. Uh, you know, it's difficult to study vis-a-vis -vis when you intervene. With autism, it's a bit easier, although it's, it's a very difficult clinical study to do. And um, Andy Zimmerman at um, Harvard and later UMass Medical Center um, worked with us at Hopkins to do two clinical studies. In the first one, we showed, I, I would say, a fairly dramatic difference in symptoms. Um, we didn't have any biomarkers, though. And in the second study, we showed a, uh, a less robust but still, a, a, still a, a, a difference in outcomes, uh, autistic uh, behaviors, uh, characteristic uh, behaviors, um, and we did have some biomarker data. And it's important when you do these studies to to not only be able to say, especially uh, neurological or psychiatric studies, to not only be able, be able to say, okay. The caregivers said they got better in this and this way, or the physician treating said they got better in this and this way. But if you can do that and correlate it with biomarkers like glutathione levels or mitochondrial uh, activity, um, that makes it a much, um, it makes it a more powerful study, but it gives the next person wanting to do a study like that a hell of a lot more ammunition to work with to try to figure out where to go next to, to really plant a stake in the heart of uh of this as a as a therapy or mm -hmm. that's 
that's that's the op- that's the opposite uh, simile that I'm looking for. But yeah. So where, where's where's the kind of uh, consensus with you know currently when it comes to sulforaphane and and autism? Do we do we understand the the mechanism of action and dosage and is it kind of accepted as something to use therapeutically or is it you know in that basket of interesting and we see something and there's more research that needs to be conducted? I think I think it's clearly in in the in the basket of things that um, uh, can be used clinically. I think the problem, um, which I'm sure you've seen in in uh, your work, I think the problem lies with the medical establishment, and um, you know doctors treat disease and use drugs and surgery, and you know there are many doctors I know and like and and respect. Um, and they have a tough time of it in medical school. They have a hell of a lot to cram into their brains, but they're, but one thing that's not crammed into their brains is nutrition. Um, and that's a well-documented, almost a complete blank spot in their education. So all, the most, most physicians will do is say, you know, eat a healthier diet, eat more fruits and vegetables, get more exercise, bam, your 15 minutes is up, go away. Um, so nutritional counseling is is woefully lacking. Um, I, 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 but I think for those who are in integrative medicine and functional medicine, um, it, it's quite well known actually that sulforaphane is is or I should say broccoli, perhaps as a supplement, um, is something to be reckoned with and considered. And we have friends in Korea who are prescribing it, friends in the U.S. who are prescribing it. Um, in fact, it's so well known, albeit, uh, you know, by peer reviewed publications and word of mouth that the Parkinson's disease community has now perked up. And there are animal studies suggesting, um, very strongly, um, that it may be useful in Parkinson's. And so there's somebody actually in, um, a retired British, a retired chemist in France, who has self-experimented with broccoli sprout extracts, broccoli seed extracts, and seen remarkable, this is an N of one anecdote, but remarkable improvement of his symptoms. Um, And he's documented them very, very fastidiously. He then recruited eight other friends who had Parkinson's in that very tight-knit sort of self-help or network. Um, And... And and they documented effects also positive effects on the disease state on the on the symptoms of the disease, and he's pushing a number of us to try to develop a more um, robust and and sort of sanctioned uh, trial. Wow. Yeah, he's he's actually published his work in BioRxiv, which mm. is a, a repository for non peer reviewed papers, and it's quite interesting if you have a chance to look mm. at it. So. Um, I, I got away from your question, so maybe you better steer me back. <laughs> on on the autism studies, the the kind of clinically effective dose that's been used in these studies, are we talking about something that is available to people through the regular consumption of broccoli from their grocery store, or were these studies using you know very concentrated extracts or supplements that you you would be unlikely to kind of um, obtain through a normal diet? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I, I should have should have made that clear. 
there are a lot of clinical studies where it would be desirable to use the whole food, um, but it's but it's difficult logistically. And unfortunately, with autism, that that is a major with with autism with young kids, um, mm. that becomes a major hurdle. A lot of autistic kids, and I'm not an expert. I'm sort of by assimilation gained some knowledge of autism, but I'm it's certainly not my professional calling. Um, a lot of kids with autism have very strong feeding preference, very strong food aversions and and feeding preferences, I guess is a way to put it. So there are a few, few foods that they'll eat and nothing else. So there's no way we could have given them broccoli sprouts. Um, and so for the clinical trial, the first one we did, we used a sulforaphane powder that I made. And then for the five or seven follow-up studies, they all used a, um, a dietary supplement rich in sulforaphane or glucoraphanin um, because, really because we could calibrate it. We could give a specific dose. And with most of these, I guess all of these studies, we wound up giving each of the caregivers uh, an individual pill grinder, a hand pill grinder. And so these were tablets and they ground them up or they, they, mm-hmm. they emptied the contents into the kid's favorite food. In terms of dose, we were very clear that, and and the our ethics board wouldn't have given it approval, certainly, if we had tried to use a supra-dietary dose, if we had tried to go with a really high dose. And, and when you think about it, that would have probably been self-defeating because, um, you know, you could, you could imagine a parent or a caregiver of a three- or five-year-old, um, in a, you know, in one way or another, getting more broccoli into a kid's diet or giving them a dietary supplement at a responsible, reasonable, validated dose. Um, it's hard to imagine them giving them two pounds of broccoli a day mm-hmm. and forcing them to eat it. And that you wouldn't want that, right? Quality of life would be even, would go downhill, I think. So, um, so, so with, these were dietary doses. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. And what is that? Like if, if we're talking a, a dietary dose of, uh, glucoraphanin or kind of the sulforaphane potential of, of yeah. a food. Um, can you, can you quantify that? So we kind of have some idea of, of a number. Yeah. So the numbers are, um, oh, something in the tens, uh, tens to, uh, of milligrams, uh, per day, uh, per day, um, you know, based on a 70 kilogram adult. Um, I think our, our target for, um, Children was, uh, I can't remember if it was one or 2.2 2, um, um, micromoles per kilogram body mm-hmm. weight per day. But th- this is well documented. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me because there's so many studies that have been done. But again, in those papers I, I mentioned to you, we, we give the whole range of doses ever given in any clinical trials to people, mm-hmm. and we flag whether they were effective or not, or whether they produced a, 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 you know, a desirable outcome or whether it was null. The, um, uh, so the, the other thing that, that's important to know is the doses we talk about are calibrated for sulforaphane to be equivalent to about what one would get in a a couple of servings of broccoli, market Mm -hmm. stage broccoli a day, which is a couple of hundred grams for um, uh, um, uh, for an adult. 
and um, something like two ounces of broccoli sprouts uh, that are much richer in these compounds. Mm-hmm. So we're, again, we're not talking about superhuman um, levels or, or frankly, stupid sure. levels. Um, yeah. So we're not two, talking about a drug either. Two ounces of broccoli sprouts. Is that like a, a kind of a handful? Like, yeah, a handful. A lot of times in the U.S. anyway, they come in these clamshells with about four ounces. So they mm-hmm. snap closed. So about half of one of them. So that's one of the advantages of the broccoli sprouts is that you can get a lot of the the glucoraphanin in a, a kind of smaller volume, so to speak, than eating whole broccoli. Yes, exactly. And that's why we... Um, promoted broccoli sprouts in the early nineties when we discovered that they were so much higher in the, in this compound. Um, uh, but we were, we were, you know, we were careful. I mean, careful is a relative term, I suppose we, but I don't think we were wrong in doing it. We were careful to equate how much is in say a couple of ounces of broccoli to how much is in the sort of the average of broccoli sprout, how much is in the average market stage broccoli mm-hmm. and not to recommend exceeding what, um, as my now deceased um, mentor used to say, what aggre- um, enthusiastic broccoli eaters would consume. So people at the high sure. uh, end of broccoli consumption from all these surveys mm-hmm. that, that have so been you, done. So you're not recommending people have cups and cups of broccoli sprouts every day? No, no. And, and you know, all the evidence we have to date suggests that you don't have to eat this for sulforaphane that you don't have to eat it every day either that every mm-hmm. every other or even every third day is probably quite as good because you're boosting levels of these protective enzymes and you don't have to keep boosting them mm-hmm. we've also shown with three or three month or so studies in china that the the effect this this protective effect isn't fatigued um with long-term daily dosing you mentioned before uh, myrosinase, and obviously we've been talking about glucoraphanin, and we, we've certainly been talking about sulforaphane. And I know you kind of spoke to this, but in, if someone's kind of listening to this for the first time, it is somewhat confusing because there is a precursor, there's an enzyme, and then there's the active. Uh, and and I know that you you often talk about things like chopping and mustard seed powder. Can you perhaps just remind us again about the kind of relationship between the precursor, the enzyme and sulforaphane and some of these general tips that people perhaps speak about, which just helps increase the amount of sulforaphane that that ultimately your body has access to? Yeah. Um, So in the plant, Remember, the plant's trying to defend itself from various stresses. So in the plant, there's a bag of sap. It's called a vacuole, a little different than any human being. And in that bag of juice, uh, it's got glucoraphanin. Um, And in in the jelly part of the cell, the cytoplasm associated with membranes, it's got this enzyme called myrosinase. And it's only when you bust the cell, when you break it by chewing it or, you know, or, or, or penetrating it with a fungal hostoria, uh, uh, or whatever it's called. Um, it's only when you do that, that you let the enzyme and its substrate come together. 
But when you do, you form sulforaphane in the case of glucoraphanin very, very quickly within within a, a half a minute or so um, if you do it in, in sort of a controlled environment. Um, and so the problem is that sulforaphane is very unstable because it wants to bind to every protein and, and macromolecule it sees. So it doesn't last in its active state very long, which is why in most of our trials, we did deliver the precursor glucoraphanin, which is very stable. Um, and we relied either on co-administered myrosinase, the enzyme, or we relied on the gut microflora to do the hydrolysis, to do the conversion to sulforaphane. Um, so, the, and I, I, you know, if you've, if you've heard any of my talks, I'm sure you've heard me give this example. But the 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 best way to sort of visualize it is. Um, with a slice of radish, you know, with a red radish, you put it in your mouth, you chew it. The immediate sensation is cool and crunchy, but within a half minute or less, you get the heat. Mm. And what you're doing is exactly that same reaction with a, just a very different, a very similar pair of compounds. It's it's almost identical to sulforaphane, but it happens to be hotter. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what happens. Um, when you move from the plant world, well, let's stay in let's stay in plants, not go to supplements. But um, if you eat raw broccoli, what you're doing is you're being the predator. So you're eating the glucosinolate or glucoraphanin, and you're creating that reaction in your mouth. And as it goes down the old pipes, um, your sulforaphane is being absorbed um, much certainly more quickly than it would be if you had to wait till you got to the large intestine mm-hmm. where you hit all of these uh, bacteria that have myrosinase activity. So the pharmacokinetics or the dynamics of absorption are, are different um, when you eat raw broccoli than when you eat cooked broccoli. And it turns out that bioavailability is, is, uh, is indeed h- higher if you eat raw broccoli, but it's not essential that you do that if you don't like it. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of talking heads and podcasters want to give recommendations. Or, you know, you've got to you've got to eat your broccoli raw, or you've got to add some other source of myrosinase like mustard seed. Yeah, you can, but when when you know you and I who know how bad off badly off the world is, look at the population, especially in the West, and say what can what's mm-hmm. the best thing to recommend? Are you going to give some? formula about microwaving and adding mustard seed or you're going to say more just eat more plants damn it yeah i mean that's what you need to do to be healthier yeah and if you want to throw broccoli or some other cruciferous vegetable in there that's a great idea do it mm. and 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 that's i mean that's simple advice but that's that's where i always turn to i think that's um, really interesting and 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 the the point that you made there about raw versus cooked the reason why you were uh, you're talking to that is because when you cook it, you deactivate, if I'm right, that myrosinase that's in the plant, which means that that reaction doesn't take place in the initial part of digestion. But I didn't know that our bacteria also has myrosinase. So there's almost a bit of a backup plan should you be consuming broccoli or cruciferous vegetables that are cooked. So that's really cool. I wonder, have you have you given any thought as to uh, whether one's microbiome composition dictates their kind of ability 
to actually uh, um, make the most of the uh, glucoraphanin-containing foods that they consume. Yeah. Um, yes, we've given a lot of thought, and we're, and we're not the only ones. So, um, some of our early, one of our early exper- in one of our early experiments, we actually gave um, subjects volunteers um, a uh, a large dose of uh, of uh, pre surgical antibiotics to knock down their their bacterial population, and then they self administered fleet enemas. So they were cleaned out and had very little bacteria in the colon for the day in which we did an intervention. And we did a before and after evaluation of w- whether they had myrosinase activity in their microflora. Um, and so we completely got rid of it. And then it grew, it bounced back to levels characteristic of each individual um, within, I think it was a month was our follow-up period. Um, we know that all of these phytochemicals have an effect on the microbiome. Uh, we, and I use that term very loosely because I'm not, um, I'm too old to be a microbiome expert. Um, those people are all uh, the, new, the new breed of biologists. But we, we know that we know the specific strains or species of bacteria that have myrosinase activity. And there are companies, uh, there's a company in Japan that I know has looked at, uh, there are multiple companies that have looked at, for example, a probiotic approach to supplying myrosinase-containing mm-hmm. bacteria by, you know, when you think about it, you, um, well, maybe you don't want to think about it, but you, all you have to do is enrich uh, a, a stool culture of someone's, uh, and this is actually done for fecal transplants, which are now pretty widely used um, to fight certain bacterial infections. So you can select from normal human bacterial populations and sort of bump up the levels or even select for certain types of bacteria. Can you administer them? Is it wise? Do those levels maintain themselves over time unless you have the repeat sales of buying probiotics uh, all the time? Don't know. And is it so? I'm not recommending that, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think all this is coming, whether I like it or not. Um, I think people will do it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting area of research, and it the reason that question sort of came to mind was I know that there's been research on isoflavones and some difference between people in terms of how they metabolize those based on their microbiome uh, consumption. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting thing to to entertain and probably an area of science to kind of watch as it unfolds. Another question I have yeah. for you I, is... I just want to interrupt you and say that we actually have a study. Uh, it was a study on autism with a collaborator and um, she actually, she did collect stool samples and they were evaluated. And that paper is in my list of things to write in retirement. Um, but so, yeah, those sort of questions are being asked um, probably not fast enough. Keeping, Sorry. Yourself, you, you, keeping yourself busy in retirement. So I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's retirement, but uh, yeah, it's just it's just not getting a paycheck from yeah. Johns Hopkins anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, the the glucoraphanin you you mentioned is stable, and so it sort of makes sense that that's the the way the the compound is in the plant, and it's not sort of activated and turned into this more unstable sulforaphane until there is some sort of uh, predation, I guess, or threat. Uh, right. 
I'm, I'm interested. How important is uh, how fresh our food is? So, is the glucoraphanin content of say broccoli is that or broccoli sprouts is that highest? You know, immediately after harvesting, you know, the fresher the plant, the the sort of more sulforaphane potential. Has anyone looked at that? Yeah. Um, it's been looked at sort of from uh, from from the side. Um, so what we know is that as plants, you know, stay on the supermarket shelf or in storage and age, um, you know, cellular structure breaks down of the plants, and obviously not too fast because no one no one would eat a broccoli if it, if it was dried up and you know looked awful. But but so there's some cell lysis or deterioration, and that's going to cause myrosinase to act on glucoraphanin, sulforaphane to be formed. The sulforaphane will get bound up by proteins and macromolecules in the plant. So you'll have less of the total package. Um, so yeah. Uh, and, and of course there are a lot of other vitamins. Uh, there are, I shouldn't say a lot. There are other vitamins like vitamin C whose content goes down. So um, the loss of phytochemicals certainly parallels um, just general quality decline if you look at stuff like the carotenoids, which you mentioned, um, you know, same thing, color, color vibrancy goes down. That means some of the carotenoids have been depleted. So, yeah. yeah. I know that's why uh, Doug's such a big fan of sprouts because he, he talks about them being literally the, the freshest food that you can consume. You know, they're, they're yeah. alive when you eat them. Uh I yeah, but the other thing about sprouts, and I and having tried to push broccoli sprouts early in my career, I, I can I I think I have rights to talk about this a little bit. But the thing about sprouts is they're so transplantable anywhere. I mean, anybody could grow their own food. You don't have to grow all of it and just eat sprouts, as I think Doug does. But um, you can you know you can add fresh sprouts, meaning fresh vegetables. Mm -hmm to your diet, no matter where you live, you know, uh, and it's really, it's fairly simple to do. It's effortless, let's say, but yeah. it, you know, takes a little forethought. I agree. I, and I know that Doug does not just eat sprouts because I saw him, <laughs> I saw him eating a durian and I know he loves his durian. So, um, I know. And he makes wraps with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> Nori and yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but sprouts certainly are make up a lot of his calories. Talk to me about the supplements. We've kind of spoken a little bit about them. I'm interested. Uh, there are a lot of sulforaphane supplements on the market. Um, what are your thoughts about supplements? When would, you, when would these perhaps be good for someone to, to think about consuming uh, versus foods? And if someone is looking at getting a supplement, is there a way of kind of um, negotiating all the different options out there and, and yeah. finding one that is of high quality? Yeah. Um, so I think I, I, in full disclosure, I should say I, I am consulting now for both a food company and a supplement company. Uh, by food company, I mean a, a responsible food company, not big food. Um, but but um, yeah. Yeah, I think there are a lot of of opportunities or instances where supplementation is is uh, either wise or certainly not something to shy away from. Um, 
what I've what I always used to say is that you know as we age, and I, I have some additions to this, but as we age, by and large, people um, in Western societies anyway get less physical exercise, they get less active, and they consume less food. They they um, they don't eat as much, and is it is difficult to consume, you know, whatever the latest recommendations may be. Five or five or ten or you know however many servings of fruit and veg a day, um, and it's more difficult for people faced with this constant barrage of of ultra processed food, which makes up the center of you know the majority of most grocery stores in this country. Mm-hmm. So you can take the attitude of you know these people are these people are wrong. They should be eating more fruit and veg. Damn it! And you know do it listen to me or else you're you're doomed well that's sort of stupid you know i used to think that that sort of preaching was was what i was put in my academic situation to do but i quickly realized that you know if you're talking to a brick wall and people look at you with a blank face and blank stare and go back to eating french fries and and hamburgers um, you know, there's it's a it's a useless battle in some cases. I, I'm not I'm not a legislator, political regulator type person, but you know, there are solutions people have put forward in that realm. But so I think if someone refuses to eat more fruit and veg, um, then a supplement that's rich in phytochemicals uh, or certain phytochemicals is is valuable, mm-hmm. including sulforaphane. I think what's becoming very clear nowadays is that um, there are many disease states which, uh, in which or for which sulforaphane supplementation may be beneficial. And nobody's in a, so first of all, nobody's in a position um, in, the, in the supplement world uh, to make uh, claims about that. Um, and the, the big pharma has an absolute stranglehold on those sorts of claims. Um, I don't want to see sulforaphane turned into a drug because it's not, you know, it's a, it's a natural product. It's a plant compound. Um, yet people are constantly trying to make derivatives that are more potent or less, you know, or that they can patent. Um, so, I, I think in many of these disease states, there's going to, there is becoming, I mentioned the autism and Parkinson's situation, a groundswell of interest in these things. And um, in many cases, supplementation would be reasonable. If you go to this whole issue of chronic disease, chronic diseases, and you look at the number of chronic diseases that, um, for example, NRF2 up regulation um, in, uh, is effective in, you realize that probably half of the population in this country has one of the chronic diseases that would benefit from uh, Mm. such boosting of NRF2 related detoxication enzymes. Um, Because I mentioned diabetes, you know, obesity um, and on and on and on. So really you could view all of those people um, as candidates for supplementation, um, even regardless of the diets that they chose to mm-hmm. chose to eat. And you mentioned before some of the doses in the studies, but I'm, I'm curious, is, 
is that what brands are using to kind of inform their own dosages? If I'm walking into yep. the supplement store tomorrow yep. and yep. I, I want to, to buy a sulforaphane supplement yep. because let's say, for example, I just don't like broccoli. Um, I'm yep. telling fibs because I do love broccoli. But if I, if I didn't like broccoli and I just maybe I travel a lot, I know my diet's not great, I want to get a sulforaphane supplement and I look at all the options out there, what am I looking for to kind of separate something that might be inferior quality to something that is trustworthy and is actually going to give me the benefit that these studies have shown? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, first of all, I, I get the impression just from what I see of the supplement industry that there's, I won't call it price fixing, but you know, all the supplements seem to cost about the same per bottle of 30 30 or 60 tablets. Um, I, I think the more responsible supplement companies, um, uh, which also equates to the larger ones and the more well-known ones, um, do a pretty good job of, of going a little bit on the conservative side of uh, the dosages that would be um, prescribed if you followed sort of the, took a mean of all the published literature, and, and which is difficult to do. Um, and usually that winds up being, um, as I say, you know, something like 30, 30 to 50 milligrams a day. But you can't really equate because of the difference between glucoraphanin and the addition of myrosinase or not and sulforaphane or not. And because there's so much um, incorrect labeling and incorrect um, analyticals in the industry, you do have to be very careful. Um I mentioned that I consult for a supplement company and a few food companies. Um, the supplement company I consult for is the one that I co-founded with Paul Talley, my mentor, um, back in the in the nineties. It's been around for twenty five years, and we we have ceased um, we ceased for a long time any involvement, financial or management, in the company because we wanted to be at Hopkins and do the clinical studies we were doing. Since I retired, I decided to go back and, and consult for them as a, as a paid consultant. And I'm mentioning that not as a commercial, and you can cut this out if you want, um, but of the podcast, but um, because of my involvement with them, I know a bit about all of the supplements in the industry, um, the ones that sell glucoraphanin. And I can tell, and I also know that this company, Brassica Protection Products, um, makes a high quality glucoraphanin supplement that it sells to a lot of the bigger supplement companies and the better ones. And because I've been advising them and looking at the analyticals, I know which companies, and I'm, I won't out the bad ones here, although I've been tempted to do it on my website. Um, there are many companies that, that make claims that are absurd um, about how much, about what claims that they have sulforaphane in their products or, or how much they have. So, I know, and, and BPP does supply the ingredient. I know that, for example, Thorne uh, has a product that, uh, that I trust and that we've actually used in the clinic. Um, it's called Crucera SGS, I believe. Um, a company called Zymogen has one too. I've, I've used less, but we've also used it in clinicals. A company called Nutramax has something called Avmacol. Um, and uh, we've actually used that a fair amount in the clinical, the autism clinical studies. Um, and all of them 
I, I think are very responsible and they give you what they say they give you and their labeled dose recommendations are reasonable. I think with all of them, it's two tablets a day or two capsules a day. Um, but again, that, that sort of up translates to whatever else they have in those products and um, uh, whether they're delivering glucoraphanin, glucoraphanin plus myrosinase, or, or, or if they say they do deliver sulforaphane. None of those three companies deliver sulforaphane. There are a few companies in the US and, and in Europe, and I'm not sure, but I think Australia maybe too, that claim to deliver sulforaphane. All of them that I've looked at are not true, not accurate, not accurately represented. And because it's so unstable mm. and doesn't last, I wouldn't recommend taking it um, given what I know about the products that are out there. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's good advice. There's a few options there for people to to look up. One thing that just came to mind, I've I've had people ask me a number of times over the years about glucosinolates and thyroid health. Has there yeah. been any research looking into you know, consumption of broccoli sprouts, for example, at the levels that you're talking about, you know, a couple of ounces or these supplements and how they they may affect thyroid function. And is there anything for people to be concerned about there? I I, I would say there's nothing for people to be concerned about there. Um, we've we've looked at thyroid function in almost all the clinical studies we've done where we've where we've done clinical chemistries, which means most of them. Um, there's that sort of groundswell of concern has always been there because a long time ago, um, rapeseed or which has been bred and called canola now, um, produced signs of toxicity. Um, excuse me, signs of of goiter or or um, uh, toxicities in cattle, I believe, and off flavor in milk and cattle. Um, and it was blamed on glucosinolates. Um, and indeed, in the, in the whole plants of broccoli, there are things called indole glucosinolates, which produce compounds that ultimately, and, and nitriles, which produce compounds that can have um, goitrogenic properties if you eat them in really large quantities. And there were some ancient studies from the 1920s on give, you know, deliberately giving rabbits goiter by feeding them, um, which is iodine related, of course, thyroid, by feeding them cabbage, you know, but it was a diet that was, I forgot, 50% cabbage or, or all mm. cabbage or something. So, um, so I'd say, no, there's not a concern there. Um, in in oh. fact, there's a, there's a paper specifically based on our extensive data in China. I'm not a co-author, but um, Chartum Pekas is the name of the first author. And, and he, he's a thyroid expert and looked specifically at that. Um, and the answer is no, there's no effect. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, you mentioned res resveratrol earlier. I'm, I'm interested in what your take is on this compound because I, I feel like there's been a lot of different opinions out there in the media and in some ways I, I think resveratrol has has almost left a bad taste in in people's mouths about phytochemicals i've heard people on one side of the fence claiming it's a you know a, a longevity compound that will certainly add years to your life and then there's yeah. other scientists saying that's nonsense and the data is flawed and and it seems like all of these 
folks are very well-established scientists and it's a bit of a mess. I'm wondering if you have a view on this as an expert in phytochemicals, but maybe sitting a little bit outside of the resveratrol research. uh, Why do you think there are these very different opinions about whether this, this compound kind of lives up to the claims that, that exist? Um, so first of all, I, I'm not an expert on resveratrol, but you mentioned you mentioned that. Um, I, I don't, did you did you ever have David Sinclair on your podcast? So yeah. I have I've yeah. had David Sinclair on, and yeah. and he right. he he talks a lot about resveratrol, yeah. and then I've also connected, and it's been more offline at this stage with uh, Dr. Charles Brenner, who has a, a very different opinion. And not to say that they're the only two scientists out there with opinions on resveratrol, but they're certainly both quite vocal. Um, and, you know, from the outside, it does seem like a bit of a mess. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that's a, a good, I'm sure that's an accurate statement, but um, I know a lot of the early hype uh, was based on longevity um, because of its involvement in the sirtuin pathway. Um, and, you know, I, I, there, there, there may be something to that. I'm really not. I, I, I'm so distant enough from that literature not to mm-hmm. not to want to venture an opinion. But I think more recently, the the sort of uh, in industry and in food technology and formulation technology has been a huge amount of of um, uh, interest in formulations. So nano encapsulation and various. Uh, liposome, phytosome encapsulations of resveratrol and curcumin also. And the reason with both of those compounds is because neither of them are that um, bioavailable and you have to give a lot and they're not very water soluble at all. So with curcumin, I think, you know, it's not, it's not a problem if you're, uh, if you like Indian food, you just pour pour it on and some of it will get in, but I know the supplement companies have uh, gone to great extents fighting with each other to make better formulations that are more, more soluble and are taken up better. I think the same goes for resveratrol. The uh, early in this, in the resveratrol days, I am sure you and Sinclair must've talked about this. People were saying you needed to, you would need to drink, 400 glasses of red wine, which is a good source of resveratrol to get a daily dose to be effective. And obviously that's a little, little excessive. Um, so, uh, just, yeah, yeah. So it resveratrol more, much more than curcumin in my mind sort of gets pushed closer to the pharmaceutical realm because, because practical food-based doses, Mm-hmm. Or seem a little hard to come by. Um, as, as far as its effects, uh, we know that it, you know, there there is a lot of mechanistic work showing its efficacy in, you know, in regulating certain pathways. Um, as I say, I'm just not, I'm just not savvy enough on the latest to, to say, is it worth trying? I don't take it, but. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I uh, I just wanted to hear your view, but um, thank you for that. Well, I agree. It's a bit of a mess. Yeah, um, yeah. But it may it may turn out to be the you know the brass ring of for longevity mm-hmm. or health span ultimately. But yeah, it's not there now. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, and I guess that kind of brings me to one of the final questions I wanted to ask you. 
which is looking forward, the, the, the sort of future of science that is looking at phytochemicals, resveratrol and others, sulforaphane. Are there, are there further technological advancements that are needed or is it just concentrating on a particular type of science that you think is, is required and will be you know, beneficial in terms of pushing this area of science forward? Well, I think I think one thing that will be very powerful is linking mechanisms, um, the molecular biology, the you know pathways that are well studied and well understood, with the with the observed symptom uh, effect, symptom expression of uh, in various disease states. That doesn't really speak to prevention that much, though, and and prevention is where I really see uh, um, the brass ring for phytochemicals as opposed to therapy. Um, so I think, I think one really has to study mechanisms and those are getting more and more related to, um, to risk for a variety of diseases and conditions. It's very difficult. Studying phytochemicals and their effects is extremely difficult, not because it's rocket science, but because A, it's, it's very difficult to get funding for it. Um, there's typically no intellectual property. So a, a pharmaceutical company, which would, you know, which funds all these drug trials, isn't going to step in and be a white knight and, and fund a, you know, a million dollar um, intervention with something they would not have any bragging rights on, if you will. Um, that makes it difficult. The fact that there are 50,000 to 5 million different compounds makes it really difficult the fact that any one plant, edible plant, has hundreds, if not thousands, of bioactive compounds in it makes it difficult. Um, the length of time, and I'm I'm giving you all the negatives, but uh, I mean, let's lay the cards out as they are. I think um, it's it's extraordinarily difficult, and Paul Talley and I used to talk about this a lot to to conduct a cancer, for example, cancer prevention trial, because if you believe what many of us are saying that you should from from childhood be eating a healthy diet, uh, you know, per, such and such, um, then you know that will reduce your risk of getting cancer, which normally develops in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it, it literally, literally would take the lifetimes of probably multiple generations of investigators, and it would take hundreds of millions of dollars, that's been stated many, many ways, many times before, to do a proper prevention study. So you wind up looking at, um, uh, at populations at high risk for certain diseases, um, and you can do that with some cancers also. Mm. It's still a, a, a huge study. Um, or you focus on chronic conditions that are easier to um, make a make an early call on. And, and perhaps autism uh, is one of mm -hmm. them. Um, perhaps, you know, you, you could argue that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are because you know generally when they develop, but maybe not because mm -hmm. what if your epigenetics as a fetus or as an infant um, or your diet from, you know, age five on was, was really what predisposed you to some of these conditions. How mm -hmm. the hell do you study that except yeah. in, in a poor mouse, you know, uh, <laughs> which doesn't translate. Mm. 
that's what I always think about the studies that look at at-risk populations in terms of extrapolating from that. You know, it does leave that question of, well, what, whatever the intervention was, was it too late? You know, had they already lived 50 years with and you know exposure to a diet that was low in phytochemicals all of a sudden you run this intervention sure they don't have disease yet but you run this intervention for five ten years and they're developing cancer but is that because you know these phytochemicals simply turned up with not enough time to exert the the benefits that they can exert over a lifetime exactly i mean that's absolutely the, the the concern um so, I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons why it's difficult to do these experiments. The, the light at the end of the tunnel or the, the bright spot, I think, there are a couple of them. One is that we as, as scientists, not me anymore, but the, the, the younger generation is, has gotten so good at doing these um, uh, additive, multiplicative, um, combinatorial experiments where they look at more than one compound at a time. Um, and not necessarily in the clinic, but, but that's coming. Because it used to be that the only way we could make conclusions about phytochemicals or about, sorry, the effects of foods is to look at a specific phytochemical like sulforaphane or resveratrol or whatever. Um, we didn't have the tools in the lab or, or in our studies to, to look at more than one at once. And now we are. And um, I, I mentioned Brightseed in, in San Francisco. They, for example, are really leading the pack, I think, in looking at um, artificial intelligence and um, just uh, this wide uh, unfocused, or uh, I guess it's called non-focused um, uh, uh, metabolomics, looking at all the small molecule phytochemicals mm. in a specific plant and mapping them, and then putting them through bioassays for efficacy or for biochemical or molecular effects. And I think that's going to lead to some eureka moments. I think it already has for them, actually. But um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's progress that's going to be made, but it, it's, it's, it's different than mm -hmm. business has been as usual. Yeah, Sure. Well, Jed, it's been a, a pleasure chatting with you. Consider this an open conversation. I'm so glad that Doug introduced us and I've really you know, loved chatting with you today please come back whenever you want to. to to close this one out is there anything that you you feel like we missed or anything that you would like to leave people with when it comes to thinking about phytochemicals in their diet um you know no except what we've already said that that the 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 smart the smart money is on just eating a healthier diet and, and that's not rocket science. We do know what that entails. And we can fight about pescatarian and carnivorous and so on um, and get more exercise and maintain social interactions. And I think the blue zones got it right. Um, and it doesn't matter where you live. You can practice some of these techniques and, and, and it doesn't matter what your diet is really. Um, there are ways to tweak all of them to make them more sensible. Beautifully put. If folks listening would like to follow your work or connect with you online, get in touch, where's the, the best place for them to find you? Uh, Jedfahey.com, J-E-D-F-A-H-E-Y.com. Super simple. Yeah. Yep, yep. Awesome. Well, I'll put that into the show notes along with 
uh, lots of the the studies that you've spoken about and and those two or three supplement brands. Thank you so much. And uh, yes, I uh, really appreciate your time and hope we can do this again soon. My, my great pleasure. Um, yep. Yep. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.